I'm sick of these fools trying to run mine. I'm coming with the pin line, running up the one time. I got a grudge against you, blue suits, black suits, white suits, and state troops. That's the way you made us. Send a brother to the penitentiary is how you played us. Locked us up for the summer. Took the brother's name away and passed his ass a number. Welcome back from our hiatus to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 COVID mania. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Heard right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, every Wednesday. Oh, it's good to be back. You know, Fran, we went two years almost without a break. Yeah. Did you know that? Um, Almost COVID to tell us that heifers y'all need a break you need a break it's okay it's it's time to take a step back but the thing is is that we weren't taking a break from richmond we were just taking a break from the podcast that's that's a thing a break from richmond is a thing no the the richmond doesn't allow that where do they sell votes (laughs) how how do i sign up um they don't have those i promise they don't have them no and that's okay we didn't want to do that anyway no so we've still been active we've still been um hitting the tweets and trying to inform people about what's going on here and today mm-hmm. we have a two-timer where i have a returning guest um yeah. to talk about like the one of the biggest issues affecting our entire community right now yeah it's affecting everyone finally like you know, I think much more, many more people are aware of what is going on, or at least trying to become aware of what's going on with the state of policing in Richmond City. Yeah, it's it's been brought to the forefront. I think for many of us, it's been uh, a part of our lives every day. And I think because of the very, very visual, very, very non-avoidable protesting and uh, demonstrations that have been going on for almost two months straight uh, here in Richmond, it's been unavoidable. And something to make very clear note of that it's brought the attention and it's brought a lot of the fight to neighborhoods that do not find themselves affected, disturbed, disadvantaged, bothered, and um, they're raising hell. They're mad because they got to hear chants in the middle of the night and and their trash cans are on fire and it's an issue. And so they're upset because property over people is an issue right now. But they'll be all right. They'll be all right. We're going to be all right. Mm -hmm. Because we need that too. That has a place in the movement. Mm -hmm. And that's what's gotten us to this point. And so here we are. And now we find ourselves at a place where we are now discussing policy. And now we're at a a point where it's time to put policy to change and put policy to or pivot to policy where we've got the attention of lawmakers, we've got the attention of lobbyists and and policy changers and and the general public. And this is a, a every year in Virginia is an election year, but this is a big election year for Richmond especially. And so now it's time to get some things on the table. And so one of the biggest things that we are talking about right now is policing and we've been talking about it for a long time. Um, and so we've got a special guest, a two-timer on the show. So you're a couple couple times away from your green coat. but we're happy to have you and of course we always let you introduce yourselves welcome back and please do so introduce yourself and let our listeners know who we've got with us today 
Yeah, thanks for having me um, on the show again. I'm Dr. Eli Costin. I am an assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I'm also a member of the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. As you all might know, there were some big wins for us coming through city council on Monday night. And um, so that's been exciting because um, RTAP has really been doing the work around police reform specifically civilian oversight for the last three and a half, almost four years now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, getting that task force established for civilian oversight, um, you know, we're, we're stepping closer to the reality. And so we're all really excited about that. Yeah. And so tell, for some of our listeners um, who may not be familiar with RTAP, tell us a little bit, tell our listeners what RTAP is, uh, what your mission is, you know, how you guys can be connected, who's involved. Sure. Um, so RTAP actually started um, as a coalition of organizations. So Southerners on New Ground and New Virginia Majority were involved. New Virginia Majority actually did a campaign on the South Side where they knocked on doors, talked to over 700 residents, and the number one problem people were experiencing in their community was problems with policing. Um, so negative experiences, harassment, violence from police, and also some instances of under-policing, right? When we call the police, they don't show up. And so, you know, these are really two sides of the same coin where we have some neighborhoods where the police are going in and, you know, harassing people, using too much force. At the same time, when people in those neighborhoods actually need help, they're not being served. And so this is something that, you know, was a major issue. And when we took those concerns to policymakers and city councilors, they were like, well, those are just stories from people. And, you know, as, as, as a sociologist, I know that people's stories count as data. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that you all also believe that people's stories count as data. But that kicked off our campaign to try to get data on policing in Richmond from the Richmond Police Department. We worked on that for about two and a half years, um, trying to get all of the data. And what we found was was that there were massive disparities, racial disparities in policing in Richmond. Black people were more likely to have force used against them, more likely to have um, increased levels of force used against them, more likely to have multiple officers use force against them. Black Richmonders were also more likely to file complaints against the police, but there are many, many problems with the complaints process here in Richmond that we were able to identify as well. And then when we looked at the things that kind of initiate police encounters, things like traffic stops and pedestrian stops. Um, Again, Black Richmonders were massively overrepresented. The fact of the matter is that Black Richmonders are policed in ways that white Richmonders are not. Um, They're more likely to be arrested. Um, They're more likely to experience violence at the hands of the the police. They're more likely to, um, you know, have all sorts of negative encounters with the police. And that's simply what, what the data shows, the, the Richmond Police Department's own data. And so we've been using that data to advocate for civilian oversight for the police essentially this entire time. Um, but obviously with the recent protests and uprising and focus on police reform, um, that's gained a lot of traction lately. And that is part of what led us to our big win on Monday night. Yeah. So yeah, on Monday night, for those who don't know, at city council, they gave approval to start to figure out how to get the Marcus alert going and how to figure out to get the civilian review board going. 
Um, so essentially for the civilian review board, they're creating a task force um, that's going to be actually comprised of community members. And so this was one of our big pushes was that the people who have input into this process need to be community members. That task force is actually going to be charged with seeking wide ranging community input. So those task force members won't actually necessarily control or dictate the outcome. Um, but they'll lead the process. And best practices are to have wide-scale community input so you actually know what types of civilian review to set up that's going to be most effective for your community. For the Marcus Alert, though, that task force is a little bit different because it's handpicked by the chief administrative officer for RPD, and it involves police officers, behavioral health specialists. The charge of those two task force looks very different. Um, and you know, there wasn't as much in the Marcus Alert Bill for community input or community representation on the task force. Um, and so I think that that's something that obviously we're going to have to continue fighting for community input on that. And I think, again, with such great progress that's been made, we still have so much further to go. And so this is just the beginning. Oh, absolutely. You know, we've been doing this work at the city level for, for quite some time. But the fact of the matter is that because of the way Virginia law works, we're also having to lobby delegates and senators through the General Assembly to make sure that we can have things like yeah. subpoena power um, so that we can have things like instead of the Civilian Review Board just making recommendations to the chief of police who decides yeah. whether or not he implements them, that the Civilian Review Board can actually have disciplinary authority and final right. say. And, you know, as we merge into all of these things and all of these were asked that have been crafted from the community and, and from different, you know, organizations as a collective, now we've gotten to a place where we're starting to see these things come to fruition and, and really many of them really in their infancy, like we're talking about. And, you know, there's still so much more work to do. We still find ourselves with so many questions on what's best or, or, or what's really the root of our problem. And we still have a major policing problem. While all of those things are pieces to the solution, we still have a major length to go, right? In trying to figure out what some of those other solutions or what some of those other components to us uh, solving our policing issue. Um, and it's not just Richmond. We have a policing issue across this entire country. Right. And Richmond is just a, a sample, right? A little samplet of uh, what's happening. And so our cases are really no different than anywhere else. What, what other things should we be thinking about or talking about that may not necessarily be specific to Richmond, but right now I know defunding the police, right? And talking about uh, we even have groups that are talking about abolishing the police. Yeah, let's talk about some of these, you know, yeah. buzzwords and phrases and things, because there are a lot of folks that, including as we have now seen our council members, who don't fully understand what well, it means when people say defund the police or community policing. Let's even though of, we've talked about these things a lot. Right. But the thing is, is that I guess not everybody is paying attention on the same level. And so we have to kind of get everybody with us on board with this. And so when you say defund the police, what does that mean? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions around that idea of defunding the police. The idea is not to just like 
immediately take the RPD's entire $96 million budget away and have nothing else in its place, right? Um, this idea, you know, RTAP has wor- been really working around the divest invest framework, which means that we would actually be slowly pulling those resources away from the police department and using them to fund programs and social services and things that actually will help prevent crime in, in communities, um, reduce trauma in our most impacted communities, and reduce the need for policing overall. Um, so things like the Marcus Alert, right? Um, the Marcus Alert is actually, you know, there are other models of this nationwide where they're so effective that they keep increasing the budgets for things like similar to a Marcus Alert, where at the same time, they're taking that money away from police budgets. Because let's be real, the police are not the best people to be responding to unhoused people. Um, they're not the best people to be responding to mental health crises. They are not the best people to um, respond when there are issues of addiction involved, right? Mm -hmm. If you put people in jail for those things, when they come back out, they're just going to reoffend. But if you have somebody from a mental health field who can actually treat the underlying cause, then you're not going to have, you're not going to have recidivism. People aren't going to keep engaging in crime. And so we really need to be funding the programs that are going to prevent crime from happening in the first place and reduce the need overall for for police presence. Um, We also do need to be funding things like civilian review boards. Um, The gold standard for that is 1% of the police budget. So here in Richmond, that would be about $9.6 million. But the idea is that that money is saved because the police aren't spending time doing those investigations anymore. The civilian review board is they're able to respond more effectively to complaints against police officers. In many cases, they prevent lawsuits from happening against the city because people feel like they're actually getting their complaints heard and they're getting justice and discipline is occurring when necessary, right? So when we talk about all these defunding measures, it's, it's not completely defunding, it's reallocation of resources to something that's much more effective. And I think when the other, the other piece of that is you know, Richmond finds itself, um, and Richmond is not alone in this, Richmond finds itself at a point where we have a lack of resources anyway in, in many areas around the city. And so it's very attractive to say, let's take money away from this entity or this line item in the budget and put it somewhere else. And then that then leads to, let's just abolish the whole police department, right? right. And let's just start over from scratch because y'all not getting it. Right. And we need to switch to other models like um, community policing and other things, which we've seen um, have in a way been effective or have worked in other places around the country. And that starts a different type of conversation. But what I guess, you know, it's kind of dubious, I guess, when we start talking about exactly what RPD uses, the amount of money that they get in our budget. And I'm sure that RTAP has looked at that in detail and we don't really have access to really see, you know, yeah. where those things, what's, how it's happening, yeah. where things are going. Like what's, what's getting spent where? Yeah. Yeah. The police budget is not very transparent. We can go back and look at what the expenditures were in prior years for things like personnel, um, et cetera, you know, but when we look at some of these expenditures too, though, expenditures on military equipment, 
Um, you know, why do we want our police to be a militarized occupying force in our city? Why are we having drones for surveillance? Why are we in collaboration, you know, with places like Ring, where we're buying into these systems where yep. then officers go out door to door when something happens in a neighborhood and Ring cameras and collect footage. Mm -hmm. um, they also have people who monitor their, their online presence in social media because people will just submit ring camera footage when they think something suspicious is going on. Um, you know, we have, I think, almost 100 cameras, surveillance cameras around the city, most of which are in public housing. When you think about these things, they're, they're really antithetical to, to producing good relationships between the community and the police department. And I think we also have to be careful when we talk about that idea of community policing, because Richmond Chief Durham always said, we engage in community policing. That's what we do. But when you look at the number of officers who actually are from Richmond, um, the percentage is relatively low. Um, including new recruits. We are not recruiting people from Richmond to then serve in Richmond. People from other places come and police Richmond. Um, they might live in the city while they work here, but they're not from here. I also think that we need to be careful about community policing because some, in some areas that has actually meant put more police on the streets so that they can be interacting with people more frequently. Well, when you do that, you have to think about what impact is that going to have? right? Um, we know that most people who end up in jail or in prison, if they hadn't had an initial encounter with a police officer, they wouldn't have ended up there. So you put more police on the streets, and that can often have the effect of putting people in jail more because police think that their job is not to build those co community relations most of the time. They think that their job is to look for crime and to prevent crime and to stop crime. And so really you have to change the entire culture of the police department right. um, when you talk about implementing these changes and, and moving to these kind of newer models of policing. And it has to be done with a structure and, and with the thought in mind ahead of time, right? Not in hindsight that, um, or with the forethought, that the way that you design community policing is around the community and what those community disadvantages or disenfranchisements may be, so that you don't continue to exacerbate those things in that new enriched model. And I think that probably brings us to, there was a, quite a great deal of um, talk about abolishing prison and abolishing the police department. Um, during COVID, which makes uh, great sense because, you know, COVID also exacerbated something that has existed all the time. Um, prisons and jails have been a awful experience for inmates long before COVID uh, wreaked havoc on um, its residents, right? And so, but what COVID did was make it even worse. And now there's a call for abolishing prisons, right? And abolishing, getting rid of the entire police department. What, what is that, where does that fit into a model, let's say for Richmond, right? Um, in a city like Richmond, what does that look like? Like what, not necessarily in a sensibility aspect, but um, how does that fit into fixing the policing issues that we see overall and how we build in our community all around that, right? What does that look like? 
Well, and I think that in many ways we have to think about, okay, well, what is the function of these institutions and what do they really do, right? Um, so for example, you know, What's their function and what are they actually doing? Right, exactly. These, <laughs> these things are not the same. So, I mean, think about all the car rallies that have happened in Richmond down at the Richmond City Jail. Mm-hmm. Why weren't we letting people out who were being held who haven't been convicted of crimes yet, right? Many of these people are in jail because they're awaiting trial and can't get out, right? Or have right. been denied bail for whatever reason. So, you know, in that sense, jails are really problematic because especially during COVID, you go to jail, you may or may not be infected with a deadly virus when you also may or may not even be guilty of a crime. Um, So there are are people in jails who are not criminals who are now at risk of exposure to a deadly virus Mm. uh, because the state has put them in jail. When we think about prisons, for example, what is the purpose of prisons, right? Um, it's supposed to be rehabilitation. But is anything about our prison system rehabilitative in its current state? Uh, nope. No. It's, it's actually very much so the opposite because when most people come out of prison, especially if they end up with a felony um, after going, they find that their uh, transition back into society is maybe incredibly not much, Yeah. It, it, it just seems hopeless. Harder from their end right and so you know so you put someone in prison and oftentimes you know especially when we think about what so many black people across the united states are in prison for it's drug crimes right right? but you've also now created a situation where if somebody was selling drugs before what job options are they going to have when they come out even less even fewer Um, And so, you know, so prison isn't about rehabilitation. We're not providing people with with job skills. We're not providing people with life skills. We are ensuring that they have fewer opportunities when they get out, right? Um, So how do we set up other systems that would actually allow us to achieve the outcomes we want? How, How do we get people to stop committing violence? Well, through things like mental health therapy, right? Through um, transformative justice and actual rehabilitation programs. How do we get people to stop selling drugs? Well, we give them other career options, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that really this is all about rethinking the systems that are currently in place and saying, do they serve the purposes that we want? And if the answer is no, how do we change them into something that can? You know, and for the police, for example, there are other places that have teams of, of just like regular civilians, unarmed, but they are highly trained in de-escalation techniques. And so for things like, you know, two people are getting in some kind of like physical altercation. Well, that person will show up unarmed, playing clothes, and have the ability to actually de-escalate the situation and talk them down without having police officers involved. Um, without putting people in jail, without putting people in prison, right? And so the question becomes, are there other programs like that that are more effective uses of our resources that move us further and further away from the things that we envision as policing currently? And coming after your badge, crooked officer. Mr. Officer, crooked officer. Why you want to put me in the coffin, son? See, I've been living in this neighborhood for too long. For you to try to change things and work it from my home. Mr. Oh.
all to some See you've been messing with brothers like myself for too long Why don't you drop your pistol and your badge, let's get it on So when, with that in mind, you know, now that's, that's another that's almost a whole nother conversation in terms of a part of criminal justice uh, of our criminal justice system that needs to be addressed, which is imprisonment and prison reform. Right. Right. Uh, which is then the next step after you encounter the police. Right. Right. So, but we've, we've got to get you to the point where you're not encountering the police and you're not getting um, arrested for uh, erroneous crimes and getting abused by the police and, having all these things happen. So one of the things that comes up, one of the main examples that comes up when we talk about abolishing the police department is our Camden, New Jersey. And um, that's been used as a, a caveat almost of this is what, you know, we should look at as a, almost a tool or a case study. And, uh, you know, if, you know, Melissa, if you, I've been talking a lot, do you want to kind of open yeah. up and talk about that a little bit? Sure. So in, um, for folks who don't know, Camden, New Jersey had one, they were one of the most quote dangerous cities in America, um, very high crime rates, um, uh, large majority African-American population, their police force had most of the funding and yet they weren't being effective. And then Camden was also going through a budget crisis. And so the county got together and was like, you know, what are we going to do here? We need to look at policing because obviously all this money that we're pouring into it just isn't working. Right. And so what they did was um, just at the basic level of um, explanation was abolish their police force and make everyone reapply, including the police chief, had them reapply under new, tougher standards, stricter standards, because honestly, it's super easy to become a Richmond police officer, by the way. Um, And in a lot of police forces, the qualifications to become an officer are less than it requires a hairdresser to get a license. Mm. And a hairdresser isn't going around with a gun and a taser and tear gas and et cetera, et cetera, walking up to people on porches and, you know, accosting them for visiting with each other. And so now their crime rate is hugely decreased and they have kind of a motto and they say that their police force are guardians and not warriors. They're there if you need them to bring out the old adage to serve and protect is more of their model now. Is that a possibility here? Is that something that would work here? Is this something that's sustainable? And let's talk about some of the the demographics too, so that people understand, you know, where this stood because, you know, we want people to be really clear about it. Right. So Camden is smaller than us. Yeah. It's smaller than us. They, um, they have about 74, five-ish thousand folks i think seventy-six thousand folks and we have 120k and then um we have about 48 percent um african-american uh residents uh in the city of richmond and they have more like 88 percent i think is what the number was but it's high much higher and so yeah they're they're smaller they have less money than we do and they also um we have a city they have a county um, around right. the city to help and make these decisions with them. And so we don't have that. And they're also uh, compact in a, a, a much smaller right. state. Much they're smaller. about uh, nine square miles. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like some of the components that they used could be transferred 
to a city of our size if we had folks on board and willing. I just would like to know, like, what, what might that look like? Is there anything that we could do from that model? Could we pull from that model? And, and, well, and I'm going to talk about some of the challenges of that model, too. Go for it. You know, one of the things before we, we go into that, let's kind of talk about, you know, some of the things. So they actually started in, in 2012 is when they voted. The officials of the county actually decided to totally vote to disband the department because they just couldn't handle it anymore, right? And just to kind of talk about how rough it really was, you know, 40% of the residents live below the poverty line. At that point, you had 175 open drug markets around between 2010, 2012, and 80% of the drug arrests were non-residents. So basically that's suggesting that you've got out-of-towners that are coming in that are basically making a stop in Camden to buy and sell. We're there. So it's, it's a drug market um, city. These are not Camden residents, right? And at the time, like you said, you mentioned they were having a, a major budget crisis and they had a $14 million budget deficit, right? And they decided to lay off more than half of its police force already. This was before they decided to disband it. And, you know, burglaries went up by 65%. And then you had a major increase in a lot of, you know, just crime and what was really going on, there was a lot of not just burglaries, but um, you had a lot of, of bad cop, good cop, bad cop, dirty cop, uh, you know, evidence planning, a lot of misrepresenting cases and not doing what they were supposed to be doing. There was a, a huge high turnover rate with them as well. And it was just a lot. It was just a lot. And that led to the frustration of, look, okay, we got to do something. This is not going to work. And so by the time they got to actually saying, we're going to cut it, right, they went, you know, through, and it wasn't just simple as we're just going to cut, you know, the police department they actually went through a process to make sure that they could. And they had, of course, you know, Dillon rule messes us up in Virginia, but they had a state statute that would allow the counties to actually do that, where they could kind of disband police departments and the counties could take over running their police structures. And so that's what they did. And they passed it and they basically fired everybody. And like you said, put them through a totally new process of, of being rehired. And I believe, I think the number was close to like 100 officers ended up being rehired after they went back through. But it was just so much, the corruption and the brutality from the Camden Police Department before they disbanded, it was just ridiculous, right? And so, of course, after they put it back together, they went through a different level of training and and those types of things. But now as they've had a couple years under their belt, it's got some problems. There's some kinks, right? Um, like everything, it's not perfect. But one of the reasons that it worked and, and that it was so attractive to Camden is because it Camden was basically like a ward of the state, almost. It was suffering tremendously. Um, and some would argue Richmond is not far from that, right? But we were, Camden was suffering uh, tremendously in terms of financial backing from the state. 
And when they decided to do that, they were able to strip the money away and kind of work on some other things and work them their way back. Now, as they've rebuilt, you know, as you said, their their um, guardians, right? They're guardians of their community. And you hear lots of success stories and how, of course, the crime rates have gone down and you've got a lot of uh, the murders have gone down. The murder rate is, is way, way down. But there's still complications with that model. And a lot of those look like, and, and I think that's important to discuss as we start talking about how that could be used or spun as a study in terms of Richmond, because a lot of these things are something that they're things that we probably already face or need to be talking about. Because some of these things are coming up as solutions already in terms of policing solutions in Richmond. A, a lot of the officers were younger when they, when they brought them back or they hired new officers. A lot of them were younger and white and they were less likely, of course, to live in the city. Um, and that's something that we already kind of deal with. And after they reestablished it, their, their new county run department, the force ramped up proactive policing, which we got a taste of, of hearing a little bit about that at a press conference earlier this week, right, from our new chief, um, where younger residents experienced or reported experience more harassment. Use of force complaints surged because you had this new progressive um, sense of we're going to stop crime before it happens, right? And that rule book, this new progressive, you know, progressive sense of um, stopping crime before it happens was adopted. And you had major complaints of people saying, hey, like, you know, now, yeah, we have less crime, but that's because you're like, you know, beating it out of us before we even do anything. Like, Doing some minority report nonsense. Yeah. Like, We've got people you know, like, hey, in the basement. I wanted to get that out because I wanted that to be, that's an important piece to add in there because Camden right. gets used as the school. Right, exactly. Leader. And I just wonder, is that model sustainable? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, they've actually shifted a little bit more in recent years is my understanding. So stopping giving out tickets or fines to people who can't afford to pay them. Equity. This is a good start. I mean, even if we think back to Ferguson, one of the big complaints was the imposition of hefty fines on people who they knew couldn't afford them. Um, and so then people were ending up in jail for not paying fines. Yep. Well, the reality is that we shouldn't be doing that. Like, drop the fine. Fines should not get people in jail. Um, they also stopped enforcing kind of like very low level, more kind of like quality of life issues, right? So like, should we arrest people for loitering? No, we shouldn't, right? And these are laws that are primarily used to also target unhoused people, yes. uh, you know, and, and poverty. And so like ending the criminalization of poverty is like an important step. What are those laws that we could do away with that primarily criminalize people who live in poverty? Yeah. Um, you know, and so these are all changes in the right direction, um, including, yes, there was, there was a problem at first with like increased use of force because it was like more cops on the street. But then, but if you train people better in de-escalation tactics, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I know that that's one of the things that they focused on a little bit later and mm -hmm. use of force reports massively dropped. Um, Good. Good. I think there were like three last year. 
in in the entire city. Um, you know, look at our use of force reports for this year so far. Oh, yeah. What do you have that number? Oh, I don't have I don't have the number on but me you, right now. You but you hear about it every single day. Oh, there are pages and pages and pages um, of uses of force reported in the city right now, yeah. particularly, and they've re- recently been adding some of the uses of force from the protests. Protests, yeah. Um, but you know, we we typically have um, over over a hundred per year uses of force in the city. Yikes! Um, you know, so you look at their uses of force three, and we have more firearm incidents than that in our city where where officers use firearms against citizens usually. Right. You know, these are pretty massive differences in how police are being trained to interact with people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've always found troubling, typically when I have met with um, any of the previous chiefs of police, I have not met this chief of police in person yet, but every single time the chief of police would come up and put his hand on my shoulder. Chief Smith did this. Durham also did this. It's because officers are trained to physically control situations. Mm. And this was just when we were like, you know. Walking. Walking. But, you know, just that, like, I put my hands on you. Officers are trained to do that to control situations. And so when we move or shift the way police interact with people, you know, people in public, people out on the street, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that has the potential to really change what those interactions look like. I'm approaching you as an equal and I want to have a conversation with you versus I'm approaching you to put my hand on you to control this situation, even though we're supposed to just be having a conversation. Right. Starting out the conversation by dominating it is not a solution to, I mean, anything like how, how do you open any sort of dialogue with a clamped hand on a shoulder, especially somebody that is not your friend, is not your relative, you're invading a personal space. And so you're starting off an interaction by invading a personal space. Sense of control. Yeah. Right. And, but this is largely how officers are taught to control situations. So it's really an issue of training and that we need to rethink the relationship the officers have to the individuals they encounter. They are trained to go in and control the situation from the get-go, um, not trained to go in in a problem-solving, collaborative type of approach. And it's actually been shown that officers who take that more problem-solving, collaborative approach they're more successful. They're less likely to use force. They, you know, they're, they have better outcomes across the board. Well, um, speaking of use of force, before we wrap up, I do just want to touch on the fact that uh, Dr. Mike Jones and Stephanie Lynch put forward a paper today that was discussed in public safety committee meeting about banning the use of certain uh, weapons, non-lethal weapons on citizens. And uh, like tear gas, flashbangs, rubber bullets, etc. right? Yeah. And when we say things like non-lethal, that really is a misnomer because things like tear gas, things like rubber bullets, they can kill certain people. And as Dr. Jones pointed out, there are officers shooting off these things from the roof of the police headquarters indiscriminately. They don't know who they're hitting. They don't know who they're targeting. Also, the new police chief, Gerald Smith, and Councilman Chris Hilbert both claimed that they did not know that in the Geneva Convention, it was stated that these are banned. Tear gas is banned because it's a slippery slope to using nerve agents, 
et cetera, et cetera. They claimed that they had no idea that that's never been taught to them. What? And even surprisingly, Councilwoman Kim Gray piped up and said, I looked it up and they're correct. That's unacceptable. Of course. So I know I don't like if you, if you could see us now, we're like, what? really trying to hold it back. How do we as residents of the city stand up and say like, that is not okay. It, it, it can't just be the protesters saying this is happening to me. That's not okay. How do we get people to understand that our police force using these non-lethal um, methods are actually causing physical harm, health harm, mental harm to people who, what? So they shouted a cuss word at a cop? I, but even <laughs> like, bigger than if that. your skin is that thin, why are you on the streets as a police officer? But like, here's, the, here's, the, here's the piece for me. And I think this is really important for us to talk about as well. So all of these protests are happening in neighborhoods. They're happening in our city and they're happening where people live, right? And they take place, you know, at night when people are at home, when people are sleeping and they, they run the course of several hours, right? It's not like 30 minutes and then it's, it's gone. There's clouds and clouds and clouds and clouds of tear gas for hours, right? And canister after canister after canister after canister, right? So just think about the people that live in some of these places and spaces that are continuously getting tear gassed over and over and over and over and over. And that's getting sucked into the air intake into your home. And so it's not just the protesters that are there as well. It's... Nope residents of richmond that are also community members just trying to eat some dinner just trying to tuck their kids into bed bed at one o'clock in the morning that are also ingesting hours and hours and hours of tear gas that they don't they're not even outside protesting and i mean and to hear them talk today and yesterday they don't see what's wrong with it they don't see what's wrong so how do how do we overcome that how do we stop it um, I, I think that this paper is going to get killed. I know that they have put it off. They've continued it for another month, a whole month. Like we don't have time for this, but what can we do? I mean, I, I think the big problem here is that it's really about where the values of the leadership are, right? Um, particularly the chief of police. Monday night, he kept saying, fund the change you want to see to argue against funding the Civilian Review Board, to argue against funding the Marcus Alert. But, you know, we can spend $2 million during the protests on policing, on munitions, on tear gas, on rubber bullets, on overtime for officers, on, you know, essentially like putting concrete pylons in the surrounding police headquarters to keep people away, right? So you have funded $2 million to engage in militarized tactics against your own people. Yep. And that is not funding the change that our city wants to see. Our city wants to see a civilian review board. Our city wants to see 
a Marcus Alert. Our city wants more mental health professionals in schools instead of school resource officers. I think it's interesting because we always talk about funding and this idea of defunding the police and we've been defunding education for a long time. Oh, that's the word of the day. So, you know, like, yes, I will take Chief Smith's words and say that we do need to fund the change that we want to see. Chief Smith's vision of that is not the same as the vision of the people of Richmond, though. Mm. And I think that's a great place to close. I agree. I think that's a great place to close. And I hope that over time, as he gets to know the city better, that he will have a chance to better learn his residents and better learn what's going to work for this city and what type of policing is going to work for this community. Richmond, decide what you want. Decide what's important to you. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to stand up at council and demand change to fund the changes we want to see. Dr. Costin, thank you so much uh, for joining us, your time, your expertise, and thank you for fighting for us again and and again. And thank you for having me again. Um, Always lovely to talk to you. We appreciate you and we thank you for all of your hard work. Richmond, as always, Flint still has dirty water and New Jersey does too. And I I think we must have some too because all out here wilding. I think we do too. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, RPS is well, well needing of being fully funded. And um, oh, and don't forget the Northside Coalition for Children's yeah. Back to School rally because even though it's virtual, kids are still going back to school. Yeah, so hit up Shonda Harris Muhammad. And teachers, she also provides a lot of resources to teachers, and teachers are also going to be called to still instruct your children and so they also funding need- education means funding the change that's it and if you didn't already know <laughs> richmond is most certainly still racist but we are definitely working on it talk to you next week Officer, crooked officer, what's happening? You beat another black man down and now you high tapping friend. Do I have to move to River Oaks or bleach my skin so I can look like these white folks just to get some assistance? Because the brutality in my neighborhood is getting persistent. Cause you wanna harass me, yeah. And if I talk back, you ready to beat me down fast, G? Just like Rodney King. But if you try it with me, it's gonna be a different scene. Try to pull me over on the dark road. Tell me to reach for my license so you can let your nine explode until my white shirt turns red from your lead. Because you like to see my blood shed. And I know you wanna put me in the coffin, sir. But push your bill ain't going out like that. Mr. Officer, look at Officer. Why you wanna put me in the coffin, sir? See, I've been living in this neighborhood for too long. For you to try to change things and work it from my heart. Mr. Officer, look at Officer. Why you wanna put me in the coffin, sir? See, you've been messing with brothers like myself for too long. It's time to drop your pistol and your bag. Let's get it.